Welcome to Platypod, the official podcast of the Committee for the Anthropology of Science, Technology, and Computing. Here, we host dialogues and conversations about the theories, tools, and social interactions that explore questions at the intersection of anthropology and science and technology studies. This bonus content is a reading from Platypus, the Castac blog. Enjoy! Fake, real, real, fake. Salversan on the U.S. medical market. A swindle exposed. 1913 Chicago. A reporter, assuming the name Edward Donlin, enters a downtown medical establishment that is advertised widely in Midwestern newspapers, offering Dr. Paul Ehrlich's new miraculous cure for blood poison, syphilis, for a price. Donlin pays $2 in fees, then the consultation begins. He feigns concern about recent hair loss. And the doctor, who matching the picture in the advertisements wears a Van Dyke beard, laughs strangely then turns grave. It is certainly syphilis. He recommends a Wasserman test, a recently invented syphilis diagnostic, for $20, and Ehrlich Salversan for $30. Pleading financial difficulty, the reporter holds him off with a $2 down payment and departs. The Chicago Tribune exposed this bearded doctor alongside several other quacks in its October 27th and October 29th issues. The doctor, who in advertisements represented himself ambiguously as Ehrlich himself, signed the receipt Coburn and offered the name Co, was actually a pair of brothers who each maintained a private practice and together are known as reputable and ethical practicing family physicians. They are Dr. W.A. Code, 202 South Kedzie Avenue, and Dr. W.E. Code, Office 2 West Chicago Avenue. In defense, Walter Code claimed that it was Donlin who deceived him. He would have been more vigilant if he were one of these fakes that advertises cures for everything. Code's ambiguous identity and exaggerated affect during the reported consultation, his inflated prices compared to Salversan's regular selling price of $3.50 per ampule, and his efforts to evade the charge of deceit paint him and his brother as consummate fakers. Yet the Coates had also maintained apparently reputable practices, Williams just a 20-minute walk across the Chicago River from their seedy Salversan Clinic. I found the Coates in a pamphlet for men specialists, preserved in the American Medical Association's Historical Health Fraud and Alternative Medicine Collection. The collection builds from the prodigious files of London-born physician Arthur J. Cramp, who dedicated his career with the AMA to exposing medical frauds. He spearheaded the Propaganda for Reform Department, debunking the exaggerated claims of patent medicine purveyors in the AMA's flagship journal. Unlike patent medicines like Dr. J. Lawrence Hill's rational $10 threefold treatment for consumption, asthma, bronchitis, catarrh, and all diseases of the throat, nose, and lungs, however, Salversan was a brand name that from its global debut in 1910 had been widely acclaimed as a powerful novel cure for syphilis. Cramp followed news about Salversan with some concern, fielding inquiries about 606 advertisements from doctors, clipping newspaper stories, and corresponding with regulatory authorities. But he was stymied by contradictions. Reputable doctors operating quack establishments, profiteering fakers selling the real thing, that seemed now to reverberate with Salversan's faded promise as the first magic bullet. 
How might Cramp's preoccupation with Salversan fakery help us to understand the American medical marketplace during an era of change, of the medical profession itself as well as its means of treatment? The Promise of Salversan On April 9, 1910, German chemist Paul Ehrlich announced his discovery with Japanese bacteriologist, bacteriologist Sahachiro Hata of an arsenic compound, the 606th tested, with specific action against syphilis spirochetes at the Congress of Internal Medicine at Wiesbaden. Chicago physician B.C. Corbis, propounding the value of Ehrlich's new discovery, 606, in the October 22, 1910 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, observed that 606 was a new kind of specific. Neither was it a single chemical like mercury, the specific of olden times that physicians still used to treat syphilis, nor did it target a specific disease through the formation of antibodies, as in immunotherapies like vaccines or diphtheria antitoxin. Rather, Ehrlich's new chemotherapy promised to deliver powerful poison to pathogenic spirochetes while sparing bodily tissues. The New York Times, paraphrasing Samuel J. Meltzer of the Rockefeller Medical Institute, called the discovery epoch-making. American physicians Henry J. Nichols and John A. Fordyce described 606's remarkable effects on 14 hospitalized syphilis patients in the October 1, 1910 issue of JAMA. The final word concerning its value will not, of course, be said for a number of years, they wrote, but the fact remains that we possess no other drug, the extraordinary effects of which in syphilis equals that of 606. A JAMA editorial published February 11, 1911, titled Need of Caution in the Use of Salversan, identified two threatening evils lurking amidst the widespread enthusiasm. One is the unwarranted optimism aroused by the claims made by overenthusiastic advocates. This evil is corrected by time, added experience, and critical investigation, and while it often leads to disappointment, it is apparently unavoidable. The second and far more dangerous evil is the exploitation of the new discovery by the faker and the quack, who are quick to seize the golden opportunity offered and to use the public interest for their own selfish advantage. As 606 became more widely available, clinical experience did much to dampen unwarranted optimism. Some physicians openly doubted Salversan's superiority to the traditional mercury treatments. Mounting fatalities led Ehrlich to advocate exclusively for difficult surgical intravenous injections and closer attention to contraindications. Reports of syphilis recurrence eroded the promise of a single-dose cure. The AMA's attention to the second, far more dangerous evil, though, indicates that not only therapeutic novelty was at stake. The science behind Ehrlich's discovery notwithstanding, Salversan's promise to miraculously eradicate a disease shrouded in shame and secrecy recalled, at least to AMA leaders, the exaggerated claims of patent medicines and advertising healers. What kind of a commodity would Salversan become? Therapeutic Commodities on the Medical Market Arjuna Paderai has called upon anthropologists to track things through contexts of exchange in order to analyze the materially situated regimes of value they traverse. The documents collected in the AMA archives trace Salversan's itineraries through the American medical marketplace of the 1910s, through clinics and hospitals, mail order forms, and even speculative markets, even as the policies, practices, and knowledges that determined its therapeutic and economic value changed. 
In particular, the AMA Salversan archive preserves Cramp's rigorous pursuit of distinctions between legitimate and illegitimate transactions and uses of Salversan. Historian Roy Porter distinguished quacks from regulars in early modern England, not on the grounds of truth and falsity, but rather economic strategy. How, amidst emerging capitalist conditions, did people attempt to make money by treating disease? Regulars, he argued, built up steady practices through personal connections. Quacks advertised standardized commodities to anonymous consumers. Salversan debuted on the American market amidst intense struggles over the economics of medical practice. The AMA battled with patent medicine manufacturers, many of whom drew business from regular physicians as well as home medicators, over the very nature of the medical marketplace. Who could claim medical expertise? Should healers be allowed to advertise? What cures should lay people be able to purchase for themselves? In the case of Salversan, the complex interplay of fakery and reality, which Cramp sought to discipline into clearly bounded regimes of illegitimacy and legitimacy, was in fact dictated by complex patterns of production and distribution, advertising and demand, and epistemic and therapeutic authority. One early case throws several of these patterns into sharp relief. Remote doctors in 1911. In order to control the quality and distribution of his syphilis cure, Ehrlich patented 606, and the German chemical firm Farbwerkehochst gained sole manufacturing rights. In early 1911, soon after Salversan hit the American market, Kramp became aware of a New York City outfit called 606 Laboratories, which advertised Salversan directly to patients for $30 a dose. 606 Laboratories adapted cannily to the emerging therapeutic consensus that Salversan should be injected intravenously, rather than simply hypodermically, by a trained physician. Customers would receive a dose of Salversan via mail, with a full set of instructions for its administration. As one form letter in Cramp's file reads, any doctor can administer it easily. 606 Laboratories director, James Hayes Scott, also sent local doctors form letters proposing a business deal. 606 Laboratories would pay the doctor $5 per injection, billed directly, to travel to customers' residences and inject the salversan they had ordered. Cramp preserved a letter sent to St. Louis physician Dr. J. N. Frank, dated June 24, 1911, in which Scott sweetened the deal. It has been our experience that the physicians throughout this country who do this work average about $40 per patient on additional fees secured for necessary tonic treatment, farther injections, blood tests, and whatever else in their discretion they deem necessary. We assist the physician in getting this money by inducing the patient by letter to continue treatment with the physician, and in this way, a good practice can be built up among these people. Doctors and Newspapers Newspaper editors wrote to Cramp about 606 Laboratories' advertisements in tones ranging from skepticism to outrage. As early as February 1911, however, Cramp's own indignance was tinged with resignation. To Frederick Paul of the Toronto Saturday Night, Cramp admitted that, quote, the unfortunate part of it is that these fakers, apparently, have the genuine Salversan for sale. We have taken the matter up with the American agents who claim that they are using every effort to prevent the product falling into the hands of quacks. In January of 1911, AMA Secretary George Simmons had corresponded with Dr. Wainwright of New York City, 
who was tasked with managing Sal Salversan's American distribution. Wainwright denied that he had sold Salversan to any quacks, affirming his own ability to smell out dubious cases, but cast suspicion on pharmacists, who he advised to sell only to patients with prescriptions from reputable doctors. In a handwritten note, affixed to Wainwright's letter, Cramp writes, if it was a case of the quack selling 606 at cut prices instead of at advanced prices, Wainwright would quickly enough find out who sold the product to them. The serial numbering plan by which every bottle of serum can be traced through wholesaler, jobber, and retailer could very easily be applied to Salversan, if the American agents wanted to. If only 606 laboratories had attempted to undercut the Salversan market, Cramp lamented, Authorities might finally be motivated to track individual units and uncover illicit commodity trajectories. Alongside reliable agents, Doctor's Diagnostic Authority was central to Cramp's efforts to control Salversan's itinerary through the American medical marketplace. Diagnosis not only ensured accurate and presumably effective administration of the powerful drug, it also differentiated legitimate Salversan transactions from one suspect of fraud or profiteering. Mail-order schemes proved so problematic to Cramp because they proposed to bypass expert diagnosis. By sending Salversans straight to patients' homes, 606 laboratories reduced the doctor's role to a purely technical one, injecting the drug. However, just as expert diagnosis ordered a series of clinical actions, each legitimating an economic transfer, Scott encouraged doctors to create opportunities for additional services, with additional fees attached. Doctors could pad their pockets and build up clientele, Scott promised, simply by requiring Wasserman tests, prescribing tonics, and scheduling follow-ups. Quackery, then, was not simply a matter of overpricing, though inflated prices certainly aroused Cramp's concern. Nor was it just about fakery, for there was often a grain of the real. Quackery was also about a transactional model that differed from that of the regular physician in its configuration of purchasing power and therapeutic authority. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any comments and feedback, feel free to share them with us on the blog. You can find the link to the post in the description of the episode.